If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. On this episode of Newt's World, Secretary Mike Pompeo is the only person ever to have served as both America's most senior diplomat and the head of its premier espionage agency. As the only four-year national security member of President Trump's cabinet, he worked to impose crushing pressure on the Islamic Republic of Iran, avert a nuclear crisis with North Korea, deliver unmatched support for Israel, and bring peace to the Middle East. Drawing on his commitment to America's founding principles and his Christian faith, his efforts to promote religious freedom around the world were unequaled in American diplomatic history. Most importantly, he led a much-needed generational transformation of America's relationship with China. His new book, Never Give an Inch, Fighting for the America I Love, is a raw account of what it took to deliver an America-first approach, winning outcomes in the face of a progressive activist media, partisan conspiracies, two impeachments, endless investigations, and the COVID-19 pandemic. So I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, my good friend, Secretary Mike Pompeo, He served as the 70th Secretary of State of the United States of America and is the director of the Central Intelligence Agency. And as a former Speaker of the House, I have to also point out, he was a member of the Congress and has had a remarkable career. Mike, welcome and thank you for joining me on Newsworld. And let me say as a personal note that while Callista was the ambassador to the Vatican, she had a number of occasions to support Secretary Pompeo, and he did 
a remarkable job representing American values and American interests, and it was a great privilege for us to be able to work with him. Mr. Speaker, it's great to be with you, and it was lovely to work alongside your wife and our ambassador. We did good work together. Well, I thought we would start going all the way back to your education because you really had a pretty remarkable education experience starting at West Point. Can you chat just a little bit about your experiences in the Army and at West Point? It was an amazing opportunity that changed my life, Newt. When I got that letter back that said you've been admitted to West Point and then ultimately had someone you'd know, Bob Dornan was the congressman who nominated me to West Point. I'd never met Bob. When I got that opportunity to change my life, I got to go to this place where I learned about hard work and how to build teams and concepts of leadership and military history in ways there's no other institution could have provided for me. And I did my best to soak it all in. And it set the course for what's now been a life that America has given me an incredible set of opportunities. And my responsibility to try and give back a bit remains. Well, I noticed when you were secretary, you had several friends who I think went all the way back to West Point with you. I did, just like we all do. We drag our good friends around. I started a business in Wichita, Kansas with three of my best buddies from West Point, all members of the class of 86. And then when I had the chance to be the CIA director, I had Brian Bulto and Ulrich Breckbuehl came with me to the State Department. These are the people Newt, you trust, you know. You've known them for decades. They were, in fact, if something had happened to Susan and me, they would have taken care of Nick. These are my closest friends. They are amazing leaders and great patriots as well. And so it's always good to have a handful of folks with you when you're running an institution that doesn't think you have it all right. I think Calista would agree the State Department was not a group, an organization that thought we had it right most days. In addition to West Point, you also did a remarkable job as a student at Harvard Law School. I remember talking to Marianne Glendon, who had been the ambassador of the Vatican, who was a very senior professor at Harvard. And she said to me one time, you know, I taught both Mike Pompeo and Barack Obama, and I can tell you Pompeo was much smarter. <laughs> I hadn't heard her say that before, but she's hopelessly biased because she and I are dear friends. I did research for her, new. She was writing books, and I needed $8 an hour. And so it was a perfect capitalist marriage between the two of us when I was a young student at Harvard. She has been a mentor to me for all these years. Well, she's one of the brightest people I've ever met. So you, you were being taught by somebody with remarkable capabilities. Now, when you were a student at Harvard, there were hearings about Clarence Thomas's nomination to the Supreme Court that went on almost an entire semester. And there's an interesting story that you tell about your reaction to leftist student donning an Anita is Right t-shirt. Oh, my goodness. It was amazing because you can imagine at Harvard Law School, the Anita Hill hearings are going on, the Thomas hearings are going on, and Anita Hill is testifying about all kinds of stuff. And, you know, it's nine to one, 10 to one, 15 to one in support of Anita and against Justice Thomas. And I remember that T-shirt. I remember the moment I write this in the book, in the very opening of the book. I write about Justice Thomas saying he will never run away from a bully. And it's stuck with me, this determination in the face of whatever the attacks may be, attacks on your ideas, attack on your person. You live this as speaker. When you believe you're right and you have it in your heart and you are convinced of the project that you're working on, don't let anyone walk you away from it ever. The book title kind of fits that too, Never Give an Inch. It's this central idea that no matter what these young kids at Harvard Law School may be saying, no matter what they're thinking about you, Justice Thomas was tough and capable and honest and spoke from the heart. And we have now benefited from him and his sacrifice for the country for decades. 
One of the things that really struck me watching you up close, while well, close to a serving, was that you could be very tough, but in a very pleasant way. You didn't confuse toughness with hostility or harshness, and yet you were extraordinarily firm. I think that's a great compliment to you. That's very kind. Newt, I've watched you. I've watched others do this. Win the argument. Bring joy. <laughs> smile. You're right. Win the argument. There's no need to mock. There's no need to rant. By the way, I concede there's a couple YouTube videos out there where my mother wouldn't have been proud. But make no mistake about it. We tried to do this because these are long-term relationships that you're trying to build. And being persuasive is proof that you have the argument right. If you have to scream or use ad hominem attacks or I think it's demonstrating actual weakness. And so I tried to do it, whether it was building our own team inside the State Department or the CIA or working with our partners around the world or, frankly, working with the other agencies inside the government. I never mistook being kind and reasoned with being weak. When I first knew you, you were a congressman. And I don't think you had any notion at that moment that you were not going to continue to be a congressman. Can you talk briefly about what happened on November 13th on that Sunday when you got a call? I had just been reelected to what would have been my fourth term as the congressman from the 4th District of Kansas, South Central Kansas. I was getting ready to go to work the next day, Monday. We were finishing out the previous term in Congress, previous session. And I got a call from Mike Pence, the then vice president-elect who'd been elected on the Tuesday before. And I hadn't seen Mike in a while. His last term in Congress was my first term. I was lucky, like physical Closeness matters. His office was across the hall from mine. That's how I got to know him. We would walk to vote together. But I hadn't seen him for a while. Anybody called and said, would you consider joining the administration? And Newt, you can remember, I worked really hard for Marco Rubio. I had never met Donald Trump at that point. I said, Mr. Vice President-elect, it would be an honor. And he said, good. And he hung up. That phone call was maybe two minutes. Monday, he called back with a more concrete proposal, said, would you consider interviewing to be CIA director? Crazy. It was the first time I actually told my wife, Susan, the day before I kind of thought, ah, that's just nothing. They're being nice. And by Wednesday, I was in New York City interviewing with President Trump. On Thursday, he offered and I accepted the position. And on Friday morning at 8 a.m. Eastern, I was the nominee to be CIA director. And so without the intervention of Mike Pence thinking of me, suggesting I might be capable of fulfilling that role in the Trump administration, I might still be the congressman from Kansas. You know, I think there's a lesson here for the public compared, for example, with the current Secretary of Transportation. Trump actually was focused on people who could do the job, people who actually were competent. In your case, with your West Point background, your Harvard background, your business background, you brought a lot of different talents at the CIA and then later on at the State Department. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast 
NBA DNA with Hannah Storm digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What is your take on the whole event in Ukraine, how it's been handled, how you all were handling it back before the overt Russian invasion? Because it seemed to me you had really stepped up dramatically from where the Obama team was in trying to help the Ukrainians be capable of surviving. It's remarkable. I get asked all the time, would this have happened if you were still there? And of course, it's counterfactual. One can't prove it. But Vladimir Putin, you know this, right? Vladimir Putin hasn't changed. His desire for greater Russia has remained consistent throughout his adult life. The idea that the dissolution of the Soviet Union is the greatest catastrophe of the last century is deeply in his DNA. It's in his heart. So this war actually begins in 2015 when Vladimir Putin takes a fifth of Ukraine. 
And when now President Biden, then Vice President Biden, was the single actor in the Obama administration saying we cannot provide defensive systems to the Ukrainians. We came in. It took a while. John Bolton writes about this to convince the president to provide those weapons. But we did. As CIA director, I was actually in Ukraine on a couple of occasions. Our officers and our military were training Ukrainian special forces, Ukrainian special operators on the ground there. I'm confident that this made a difference. It also sent the deterrence message to Vladimir Putin. And so while he took a fifth of Ukraine in 2015, he didn't take an inch of Europe during our four years. And then, sadly, we lost the bubble. We lost the deterrence that is so important in American security. And he invades Ukraine and now killed thousands of innocent Ukrainians, including hundreds and hundreds of children, and threatens all of Europe if we don't get this right. I blame the Biden administration for losing deterrence. I credit them for now providing the tools, including intelligence tools that the Ukrainians need to defend their own sovereign territory. I regret that he's been way, way too slow, way too late and way too weak. This might have ended more quickly had we provided the Ukrainians with what they needed to actually push back against the Russian military in a serious way early. We didn't. We were slow. We were afraid of provoking Putin. And we find ourselves today in a precarious situation. We need to continue to have the determination to help the Ukrainians fight for their country. Let me go a step further here, because you told a story, which I heard one time, that is so powerful and so emotional and such an example, both of your commitment as a human being and your commitment to religion. I'm jumping all the way now from Ukraine to North Korea. And I just want you to share It's a remarkable story. The very first trip I took to North Korea was Easter weekend of 2018. President Trump had made the conclusion we needed to change the way we approached Chairman Kim, and we wanted to set up a summit, try and reshape the situation. When I went, it was the case that the Otto Warmbier had just been returned to the United States. He'd been held in North Korea and died as a result of his maltreatment there. So there you are sitting across the table from this evil guy, who's killed an American, a great young man. On my second visit, he was still holding three Americans, pastors who were in prison for having proselytized inside of North Korea. At about 4.30 in the afternoon, I looked Chairman Kim in the eye and said, it is my expectation and that of the President of the United States that they will fly back with me to their families. The meeting ended. I went back to the airport When I arrived at the airplane, my team said that North Koreans had come and asked a group of our party to go with them. And about 15 minutes later, a white panel van pulled up. And out of that panel van come the three Americans. Newt, it's hard to imagine. It's your point about emotion, even telling it today. We didn't know what their health conditions were like. We didn't know if they'd be on gurneys. We had no idea what their conditions were. And they walked out of the van and they started walking and a little faster. And the closer they got to the American airplane, the more quickly they ran. And they came up the steps and we flew home with them and they got back to their families. Three lessons. New One, we didn't give the North Koreans a thing. We didn't hand over a terrorist. We didn't pay them a penny. We used American decency and power to get them home to their families. Second, Well, we had a big geostrategic mission. We never forgot them. We never forgot that there were these Americans and we needed to get them home. And finally, it's a reminder that there is evil in the world. When we get back to Joint Base Andrews, one of these men, and he wrote a piece that's in my book, in the very beginning of the book, in his own words, is his experience. When he was pulled out of his jail cell, he had a hood put over him 
and he thought he was being led to his execution. And then he shows up and sees the U.S. logo on the side of the airplane. It's really crazy. And he wrote a note to me that night from the Psalms. And I'll never forget the incredible privilege I had to greet him when he came home and to be a small part of such an important victory for the United States. The thing I was always struck about with your particular approach was, on the one hand, you had very big ideas. On the other hand, you had this instinct for helping specific people in a way that changed their life and their family's life. It's an interesting sort of dual approach to how you were doing the job. We did that everywhere, right? We had big plans in the Middle East. We may talk about them, but we also knew that getting hostages out of Iran mattered. We knew that protecting human rights inside of Iran, giving those people a chance mattered. We wanted life to be better all throughout the Middle East. And so there's the American interest, the geostrategic interest that we all talk about and think about. And then there's the American interest about preserving human dignity every place we go. It's good for Americans, too, and good for people all around the world. We're making, in the Middle East, amazing progress with the Abrahamic Accords and with the whole bringing together of Arab states in a way that we had never seen before. And it struck me that by the end of 2020, we really were moving towards a dramatically more stable Middle East. And since then, we've moved in exactly the opposite direction to, I think, now an enormous danger that at some point the Israelis, out of desperation, are going to preemptively take out the Iranian nuclear capability because they're watching the U.S. not only not do anything, but actually I just saw a note yesterday that we're pressuring the Iraqis to give $500 million back to Iran, which just strikes me as close to insane. But what is your take? You all were applying maximum, including killing Soleimani, the leader of all of their worldwide terrorist organizations, and you were prepared to take a risk, which you personally still bear the threat from because the Iranians took it pretty personally and regard you as one of the two or three key people they would like to get. Uh, yes, the Iranians are still trying to kill me. We kind of laugh about it because this is serious stuff. And it's a direct result of being serious in our efforts. Now, you know the history in the Middle East. Secretaries of state typically fly from Ramallah or Nablus to Tel Aviv, and they try and negotiate lines on the map. We knew that that would never succeed. We knew that whether it was Kerry or Condoleezza Rice or Powell or Secretary Clinton, when you were negotiating with Abu Mazen, the leader of the Palestinians on the West Bank, that's just not going to work. And so we decided nuts, we're going to go a different direction. So we did three things. First, we made very clear precisely what the Biden administration has not. We were going to support the nation of Israel as the rightful homeland of the Jewish people. We were unambiguous about this. I have no closer friend than the former director of Mossad, Yossi Cohen, from my time in service. We were linked arm in arm with them because they were the lone democracy in the Middle East, and they were a great security partner for the United States. The second thing was this deep recognition of Iran as the problem child, as the world's largest state sponsor of terror. And so we ripped up the silly nuclear deal that the Obama administration had entered, which guaranteed Iran a pathway to a nuclear weapon and said, we're going to destroy their capacity to do that. We're going to try and take the regime's resources away so they can't build out a nuclear program. So we called it the maximum pressure campaign, and we were pretty darn successful. We isolated Iran in a way they had never been isolated before. And it was those two things, Newt, that came together to build what became the Abraham Accords, because the Arab states, the Gulf Arab states could see we were serious. We were going to support Israel. We were going to make life difficult for Iran, who was trying to do harm to them. And so 
they said, goodness gracious, let's make peace with the nation of Israel and be on their side from a security perspective. And it's pretty good. There were two agreements before between countries in the Middle East and Israel. Now there are six. The Middle East is more secure and more prosperous as a direct result of that. And most importantly for us, and we always were thinking about America first, most importantly for us, the chance that we have to send U.S. forces to fight and risk their lives in that area is now substantially lower. So it is an unambiguously good thing. And the fact that the Biden administration has gone back to playing footsie with the Iranians presents an enormous increase in risk to the Middle Eastern countries. We saw yesterday the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia announced they are hedging their bets with Iran. We can see the Israelis trying to figure out exactly what you described. If we have to do something hard, will the Americans actually be with us? I think there's some doubt about that. That doubt is dangerous. We had the right end of the stick here. I regret that the Biden administration has flipped basically 180 degrees with respect to our policies in the Middle East. They seem to have a position of weakness wherever possible, which is sort of the opposite of how you'd approach things. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray, rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.
More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. One of the obvious places that this becomes really important is China. And you spend a pretty good bit of time in your book on the whole question of China and the future of our relationship there, both as a CIA director and as Secretary of State. You had a lot of interaction about China. What is it you wish the American people understood about China? There are really three things that are important for Americans to know. First, this isn't about the Chinese people. This is about a communist party. Those of us new who lived through the Soviet Union and its ideology understand that this ideology drives Xi Jinping, the leader of the Chinese Communist Party. It drives their behavior. You have to accept that central premise about this is a Marxist Leninist leader in charge of a communist party that wants global hegemony. Second piece, you got to understand their capabilities. They are broad, big space capability, big missile capability, big nuclear capability, large military, an enormous creativity. Most of the intellectual property was originally ours and they stole it, but we should not underestimate their ability to innovate and build. And then finally, this isn't a long ways away. This isn't about something that's happening inside of the country. What's happening in Xinjiang, a million people held in camps, genocide, trying to take out these Uyghurs, this Muslim population, that's bad. But this is at home. The Chinese Communist Party is inside the gates. They have enormous influence in nearly every university in America. They are operating propaganda campaigns against members of Congress. We saw that with Congressman Swalwell. They're operating propaganda campaigns against city council members and school board members. Think about that. Everyone should recognize this isn't just about our federal officials. This is everywhere. They're operating influence operations on Wall Street and in our tech community. They had the largest spying operation, I think, ever inside the United States being run out of their consulate in Houston, Texas. This problem of the Chinese Communist Party is all around us. It's inside the gates today. And that means there is a lot of work to do to push back against them. I'm really happy. We were the first administration, and President Trump gave me the space to do this. We were the first administrations to actually acknowledge this risk and begin to turn America towards confronting that risk in a way that will protect the American people. You had a personal experience of this when you were the Secretary of State, and MIT would not allow you to speak. When I saw that, I thought, this is insane. You're the highest ranking cabinet officer because that's the nature of the Secretary of State. And you're serving the American people. And one of our greatest universities is so owned by the Chinese that it rejects having the Secretary of State speak. 
It was crazy. We were all set to speak there. And then MIT basically said, we can't let you do this because we think the Chinese Communist Party will punish us. They, by the way, probably right, probably would have punished them. My, your point is exactly the right one. The fact that I wasn't, that the Secretary of State to go give a speech about Chinese influence in higher education can't go to this amazing research institution and just speak about it in a factual way. I was happy to debate it with them as well. I was taken aback by that. We went to 10 or 11 schools. I finally gave the speech from your home state knew it. I gave it at Georgia Tech. One can go read it. It's online. And it was about the money that is flooding into our schools and universities from the Chinese Communist Party and what that means to the next generation. How concerned are you about the Chinese beginning to cooperate more closely with the Russians? Very concerned. It was something we worked to try and keep from happening with some success, but not perfect. Look, the Russians are now isolated and the Chinese Communist Party who claims to be this noble voice for decency in the world, is now buying cheap discounted fuel, energy, natural gas, oil. They are almost certainly aiding and abetting the Russians' efforts in Ukraine. So the Chinese Communist Party is, at the very least, greenlighting continued Russian aggression against the West. And the fact that they draw closer is something that we ought to do our best to prevent. And we should make clear to the Chinese Communist Party we will hold them accountable for anything that they do in Ukraine. And we should make sure that when there are sanctions applied against our friends, right? So we've put sanctions on different products and we shouldn't give the Chinese a pass on that. It's hard to do, it's possible, but it is also deeply necessary. There are deep schisms. There are divergent interests between Russia and China. This is not a layup for them to come together as a geostrategic matter. The United States should work to exploit those differences and tried to keep those two separate. The real threat to the United States over the next 25 years isn't Russia. It is, in fact, China. It's Communist Party. And we need to make sure that distinction is made clear and that we work to keep China as isolated as possible from the rest of the world. Why did you decide to write Never Give an Inch? I wrote the book because it was important to recount the history as I had seen it. The media, the New York Times, the Washington Post were never going to tell the actual facts of what happened. And I wanted the American people to and the world to see how we thought about America. And it is a force for good in the world as the most exceptional nation in the history of civilization. I wanted everyone to be able to read how we tried to, as practitioners, continue that. You found the State Department a very difficult instrument to get focused on American values and American interests. What is there about the State Department that makes it operate the way it does? It's like any large bureaucracy, that it is difficult and unwieldy. But the State Department has the special place, which is that folks who choose to go there by and large don't have a value set that is consistent with mine. It's not there are exceptions. There are great people there. But largely, they come from a left of left of center worldview, which is a understanding of the world and America's place in the world as not particularly unique or special. And too many of them think that America is not the solution, but the problem. I think there's a lot of reasons for that, that the folks who choose to go there self-select are the rewards inside the system are based on that set of understandings. There's three unions at the State Department, Newt. That's just a mess. We can fix it. And then I hope we will get young conservatives who decide I want to go be a part of the national security team. The State Department would be a great place to go do that. And they'll begin to help us build out a State Department. Not that it is uh, 
Mike Pompeo State Department or Donald Trump State Department, but a State Department that does the mission of the President of the United States of America. That's really what it should be focused on. And sadly, today, that doesn't happen as often as it must. Look, I want to thank you for joining me. Your new book, Never Give an Inch, Fighting for the America I Love, is a must read for all Americans. We're going to have it on our show page so people can link to it. I'm thrilled you would spend the time with us in Newt's World. Newt, thank you. Bless you. Have a great day. Thank you to my guest, Secretary Mike Pompeo. You can get a link to buy his new book, Never Give an Inch, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Pendley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.